The following message was delivered on May 29, 1994, in the adult Sunday school class of the Trinity Baptist Church in Montville, New Jersey. To begin with, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the prophet Isaiah, chapter 40. The elders have asked me to take at least uh, four Sunday school classes these next four Sunday school classes and teach some of the doctrines that I have been teaching in the academy on the doctrine of God. Now, I do not we do not take up this study just because it's something that is a part of theology, but we do it explicitly because the scriptures declare to us that we ought to do this in Isaiah chapter 40. The. God speaks to the prophet and he tells him to comfort his people and he tells him to speak kindly to Jerusalem. And he says that there will be a voice coming prophesying that John the Baptist would come. And he tells him that he is to some things that he is to call out when this voice comes. In verse six, he says, a voice says, call out. And the one answered, what shall I call out? And he tells him what to call out. First of all, he tells him about man. All flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Speaking of this creation, which is going to pass away, but God's word is our foundation. God's word is where we begin and where we are to find solid ground. But then he goes on and says, there's something else I want you to declare. In verse nine, he says, get yourself up in the high mountain. O Zion, bearer of good news, lift up your voice mightily. O Jerusalem, bearer of good news, say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might. And then he opens up many of the uh, clear descriptions or many clear descriptions of what God is like. But one of the things that this voice is to cry out is, here is your God. And so in taking up this doctrine of God in the the ethos of this particular passage and the flavor of this particular command, I hope and desire to set before you, here is your God. Here is our God. And so in opening it up this morning, I'm going to begin with an introduction to our topic on the doctrine of God. And I'm going to have five points that I'm going to endeavor to get through. The first is our rationale for studying God. The second is the source materials for our study of God. Where do we find the material in order to understand who God is and what he is like? Third, the difficulties in the study of God. What difficulties can we expect? What things make this difficult to do? Fourth, our approach. How am I going to take up this topic and hopefully open it up to you? And then fifthly, the goals. I have goal up there. There's actually three goals that we'll have or that I have and hopefully will be your goals as well as we study through this doctrine of God. So to begin with, then, our rationale for studying God. Now, I hope as much as possible to interact and get information from you because I know this material is not new to you. I am not unaware that this has been taught before, but I have been told to ignore the fact, in a sense, that it has been taught before. 
And so I'm going to, in essence, just teach it from beginning and uh, expect and hope to get much of the information from you as we go along. First of all, by way of rationale, since this is something which grows specifically out of my mind in looking at the scriptures, I'll give you my three points under this head and hopefully in the future heads we'll be able to get get the information from you. First of all, the first rationale or reason is because of who God is. Because of who God is. Because of who God is, we ought to take up this study of the doctrine of God. Now, I have under this three points to describe who God is and why and specifically how it impacts us to study God. First of all, because he is the supreme being. When we think of God, the first thing we we need to realize is that God is the supreme being. Now, the world and the people of the world spend very much of their lives trying to get next to or rub elbows with those who are somebody. They go to parties, they gather around the right people. They want to be associated, name dropping so that they can get to know the right person. Well, if I can say it reverently, there is nobody more somebody than God. He is the supreme being, the greatest of all beings. And Moses in Deuteronomy chapter four, verses thirty five through the fall to the end of the chapter. Speaks of this reality that God is the greatest of all beings. Deuteronomy chapter four, verse thirty five. And I'm reading from the New American Standard, but I will make one general change as I'm reading. I will change the words translated the Lord into Jehovah when it specifically uses the proper name of God. So that's the method of that I'll be using. Deuteronomy chapter four, verse thirty five. To you, it was shown that you might know that Jehovah, he is God. There is no other besides him. There is no other besides him. And then down in verse thirty nine, by way of command, know, therefore, today and take it to your heart that Jehovah, he is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is no other. There is no other person that can truly be called God. And we could trace this out throughout the Old Testament, but that will be a topic of a future study. But the fact of the matter is, God is the supreme being. He answers to nobody. He does not require that any man give him counsel or direction in what he does. And because he is the supreme being, it does us good to study who he is. But also, not only is he the supreme being, he is our creator. Look over at Psalm 100, a psalm which is frequently used as a call to worship. But this psalm tells us about how God is to be related to. It says, shout joyfully to Jehovah, all the earth, serve Jehovah with gladness, come before him with joyful singing. There's the call to worship. But then what does he use to buttress that, to motivate those who are coming to this? He says, know that Jehovah himself is God. There's the supreme being. He alone is God. But then he goes on. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. 
And so our worship is to be motivated by the fact that God is the supreme being, but also that he is our creator. And so we ought to worship and study this God because not only, as he says, we ought to know Jehovah, not only because he's the supreme being, because, but because he made each and every one of us. Thus, we ought to take time to study and to know this one who made us, this one who put us together. And all of this comes together under the third point. Not only is he the supreme being and our creator because of those in by virtue of the fact that he is the supreme being, by virtue of the fact that he answers to no one, he does whatever he wills. And because he is our creator, it follows that we ought to study him because he is our master and our Lord. He doesn't answer to anyone and he created you and me. So if he doesn't answer to anyone about what he does and what he wants his world to do, and if he is the one who created all of this, and I tell you, he is our master and our Lord. He is the one that we should come to and ought to get to know because he is the one who is directive and of all of our lives. And Paul brings this out in his speaking to the to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17. In speaking to those philosophers, he said they did not know God. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 24 or in verse 23, he says, I see that you worship this unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance I come to proclaim to you because you ought to know this one. You ought not to be ignorant of this one. And who is this one they ought not to be ignorant of? It is the one who has made the world and all things in it. And then in direct connection to that, associated with that, he just goes right on to say, since he is Lord of heaven and earth and does not dwell in temples made with hands. Why is it that this one later on can call all men everywhere to repent? It's because he has made all men everywhere. And therefore, he is Lord and master over his creation. So by virtue of who God is and just the fact that he is the supreme being and our creator and thus our master and Lord, we ought to take time to study and know this God. If you work for somebody and you have an employer who's over you, does it not do you well to know who that man is and what he requires of you? Even as the catechism question was quoted a little bit ago, if you don't have any idea who he is, then anybody can come along and tell you what to do. And you have no idea whether it's from the boss or not. We need to know who our master really is and what he is like so that we can truly follow after him. But not only does the being of God tell us or give us rationale for studying God. Secondly, who we are. Ought to motivate us to study God, who we are. And particularly because we are creatures made in the image of this God. Again, a passage that you're very familiar with, but just to see it again in this context, Genesis chapter one, verses 26 and 27. Statement, a clear statement of the fact that man, all men 
from the very beginning. And I won't go through to trace this out. This is a doctrine of God study, not a doctrine of man study. But the doctrine of man is very important to helping us understand and study God. Because we are made in his image. As it says in Genesis one, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let him rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. If we are made in the image of God, if we are truly his representation, his visible icon, if you will, in this world, if man is to be that, then it does us good to understand who he is so we know who we are to be. If we are his image and we do not know what he is like, then we cannot accurately in any way accurately represent him to the world. And the problem is, Adam was made in this way and had no sin. The problem is, we have sinned because of Genesis, what's described in Genesis chapter 3. Because of the fall, we now misrepresent God in every activity, in every thought, in every word. We need to learn, then, how we ought to reflect and represent God. Because as Christians... We have been made over again into the image of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So the fact is, if we are going to reflect God as his creatures and then even more so as his creatures made in the image of his son or remade in the image of his son, we need to know who he is so that we can rightly reflect him. If we have a misrepresentation, a misidea idea about what God is like, then we are going to give the wrong signals to the world about what God is like. We are going to give the wrong signals to our children about what God is like. Now, let me just give you one example of why I feel this is so important. If we view God and have as the makeup in our mind that God is an angry God, an angry God only with no mercy and no compassion, a God who is just ready to do nothing but strike at the first time you do anything wrong. Then when we begin to represent that kind of God to our children, and that's the kind of person that we're going to be. We're going to strike. We're not going to have any sense of mercy, no sense of doing these things out of compassion and out of the good for our children, because we're reflecting the God image that we have. And we see God as an angry, mean God with no mercy. Then that's what we're going to reflect to the world. And so because of who we are as image, the image bearers of God, as the image of God in this world, we should accurately represent him. And thus we should study who he is so that we can accurately represent him. But then thirdly, leading from the general characteristic of all men as image bearers of God, because of the central place in salvation and the Christian life. Because of the central place of knowledge, the importance of a right understanding of God to our Christian lives, we ought to take time to study who God is. And as was quoted, even in Pastor Dixon's prayer, the knowledge of God, first of all, is foundational to salvation itself. Jesus said in John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true 
God. Not just that they may know something about you or know a God, but they may know the, the only and true God. And so Jesus associates and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. That's an important part of that statement. But knowledge plays a very important foundational part in salvation. So much so that being a Christian is described as knowing God. Our brother Bill Deutsch did an excellent job in opening up Romans chapter one and showing that all men to some way in some way know God. But the Bible also tells us that those who are outside of Christ do not know God. They know God and yet they do not know God. And so being a Christian is described as coming to a knowledge of God. Galatians chapter four, verses eight and nine. <clears throat> Describing what they were before, he says, however. Paul writes, however, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to that which was by nature. No gods. When you were pagans, he says, you did not know God. You did not know him savingly. You did not know, have a knowledge that could that would result in communion with God. But now that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless things? You see, he describes this transformation of life called conversion as a not knowing God and then a knowing God. Again, in First Thessalonians four, five. He describes this wicked world and all that it's like. And he ends with saying, not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles who do not know God. They are involved in idolatry and immorality and sensuality of all kind, lustful passions, because they do not know God. And when God returns, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, it tells us in Second Thessalonians 1, 8. That retribution will be dealt out. Punishment will be dealt out upon those who do not know God. And so salvation in its foundations has a knowledge of God. But our knowledge of God doesn't end there with salvation. We don't just come to know God and then that's enough. It's essential to our sanctification and our growing in grace. Second Peter chapter one. In verse two, one of my favorite passages having to do with or where I go to when I'm struggling with assurance of salvation, seeing a lack of grace in my life. I come to second Peter, chapter one, to find encouragement to stir me up. Peter writes, grace and peace be multiplied to you. But what's the channel? What's it directly associated with this grace and peace being multiplied to the Christians to whom Peter is writing, he says, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, everything we need to grow in life and to grow in godliness has been given to us. But how has it come to us through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence? Now, this may be speaking of that initial knowledge that we have when we're converted. That may be the, the essence of these two texts. But the fact is that that's still not the end of it all. He says in verse five. Now, for this very reason, also applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence and in your moral excellence knowledge. And then he says in summarizing this list, therefore, brethren, excuse me, in verse nine, for he, excuse me, verse eight. For if these qualities, if these things 
are yours and are increasing. And are increasing. They render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ. To have knowledge without an increasing knowledge is to have a useless, fruitless, empty knowledge. The true knowledge of God is something which is to increase and to be growing. And so we take up this course because it is essential to the Christian life, to perseverance. And he says, he even finishes out his book, his last exhortation, but grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Daniel 11 and verse 32, another passage that buttresses this reality. They're speaking of the true Israel in the midst of the false Israel. And by smooth words, he will turn to godlessness, those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But those people, he says, but the people who know their God, those among the people of Israel who are true Israelites, who can be described as those who know God, will display strength, will do great things, will take action, will strengthen themselves. But it's in a knowledge. It's in a growing and increasing knowledge that this avoidance of apostasy can take place. And that's actually the context of Second Peter 3 and verse 18. The previous verse says, because there are those who are coming to deceive, grow in grace and knowledge. So because of its essential nature to our, our essential purpose in our perseverance and growth in grace, a knowledge of God, let me add briefly, is necessary to effective prayer. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe. Believe what? Believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. To have an effective prayer life, we must have a right knowledge of who God is and what he is like. And it is our duty. And here I'm just summarizing some of the major things in the Christian life. It is our duty to imitate God explicitly. We are commanded to imitate him. And thus, if we are commanded to imitate him, not only because we're image bearers, but then giving explicit command from the scriptures to do so, it behooves us to study who God is. Matthew 5 and verse 48. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Ephesians 5, 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. First Peter 1 and Verses 14 through 16, quoting from Leviticus, you shall be holy for I am holy. It behooves us, brethren, for these three reasons, at least to study and know who God is. But then what are our source materials for studying God? And I have three points up there. And here I'll ask you, what is the source material that we should look to in our study of God? Not that difficult. George? The Bible. The Bible, okay. Well, I'm going to call special revelation for the Bible. Okay? Second point. Where else should we look? Rooster? Prayer. Prayer, okay. That dependence is absolutely essential. That comes under kind of my third point. 
Where else do we find our knowledge of God? Terry? Okay, general revelation. And then finally, independence upon God is the attitude in which we study these two things. Okay? Very good. Special revelation. Now, under special revelation, I have three categories of special revelation that help us in determining who God is. Now, if we were looking at our Bibles and we're opening up our Bibles to understand who God is, and obviously that's the place we ought to begin because this is the word of God, that supreme being has revealed himself and he has done so in his Bible, then we ought to look to the Bible to tell us who he is. What specific categories of scriptures would you look at to find about who God is? Where would you look and what kinds of things would you look for? Let me give you the first one and then maybe that will help with the others, okay? The first one are explicit descriptions of who God is. That'd be number one under A. Explicit descriptions of what God is like and who he is. And here, just let me read. I could go... Throughout all the scripture, and this is what we'll do when we come to dealing with these different things. But Exodus 34, 6 and 7, Jehovah passed in front of Moses and proclaimed Jehovah, Jehovah, God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousand, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. There's a clear statement about what God is like, an explicit statement. Deuteronomy 4 and verse 31 For Jehovah, your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant with your fathers. Going to the New Testament, John chapter four and verse 24. God is spirit. First John one and verse five. God is light. First John four and verse eight. God is love. These are explicit statements. And so the first thing we should look for is explicit statements that tell us who God is. And what other categories of would you look for? Okay, the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's my third point. So let's get to see if we can't come up with a second one. That's a very important one. The life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, the activities of God. Absolutely. The more implicit descriptions of God. When we see what God is doing, we can learn about what God is like. Again, just let me give you a couple of these under two Groupings, as I've tried to put them together in my own mind. First of all, the the actions, the activities of God describe for us that God exists, that God exists, especially when we looked at the redemptive activities of God. Exodus chapter six and verse seven. God is prophesying, telling Moses what he's going to do, and he's giving him something of the reason What's going to take place and why it's going to take place in Exodus six and verse seven. Jehovah says, then I will take you for my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am Jehovah, your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. He says, I'm going to do this so that you will know that I am God. That's basically the same thing in Exodus 16 and verse 12. He says, I'm going to give you bread from heaven and I'm going to give you meat in the evening that you may know that Jehovah is God. 
And then a clear passage I'd like for you to look at, and you can just stick your finger here because we'll come back to it. And then a clear passage I'd like for you to look at, and you can just stick your finger here because we'll come back to it. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 32 and following. Indeed, ask now concerning the former days which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and inquire from one end of heaven to the other, has anything been done like this great thing? You see, in verse 31, we have a clear description that God is a compassionate God. And he is not one to forget his covenants. And then he's going to say, and that was displayed in what I did. Has anyone ever done such a thing? Has any people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire as you have and survived? Or has a God tried to go to take for himself a nation from within another nation by trials, by signs and wonders and by war and by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm, by great terrors as Jehovah your God did for you? To you it was shown that you might know that Jehovah, he is God, and there is no other beside him. God had done these things, and in such a miraculous way, that he could say, so you will know that I am God. And you could go throughout the book of Samuel and Kings and find many other examples. The same kinds of statements. The activities of God are done in order that we may know who God is, and that we might know what he is like. Not only that he is God, but what is he like as God? And in Exodus chapter 8 and verse 10, we learn that he is a unique God because of the great things that he does. There is no one else like him. Exodus 8 and verse 10. Then he said, tomorrow, this is Pharaoh saying, take these frogs away. And Moses says, when? I'll do it tomorrow. He says, may it be according to your word that you may know that there is no one like Jehovah, our God. That you may know the uniqueness of what God is like. And in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 10, God says to the people of Israel, you are a holy people to Jehovah, your God. Jehovah, your God, has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Jehovah did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other of the peoples, for you were fewest because Jehovah loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. Jehovah brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that Jehovah, your God, he is God, the faithful God. So by seeing these activities, which were direct responses to God's making a covenant and keeping of that covenant, the people of Israel were to learn that God was a faithful God. Something of his character came through in his activities. And again, there are many other places we could look. But finally, and I want to take a little more time to look at this, is the explanation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. When we look at the scriptures, we look at the explicit statements. We look at the activities, especially the redemptive activities of God, and we see something of who God is and what God is like. 
but also in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, Ernie, did you have any passage in mind when you said that? Okay, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. Why is it that we can look at the Lord Jesus Christ? And this is crucial because a lot of people, I believe, at least in my thinking, don't always look to Jesus Christ as an example of God. They look at him as a, as a unique kind of being, a God-man, kind of somewhere between God and somewhere between man. But we can look at Jesus Christ and not only see the perfect example of a man, but we can learn of who God is. And that is because Jesus Christ, as the writer of Hebrews says, is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. He is the representation, the exact representation of his nature. So if you want to look at at God and want to find out what God is like, look at the Lord Jesus Christ. Any other passage? There's another one that's that's just as clear. Any other passages? Mr. Gergler. Okay, he that hath seen me, the Lord Jesus Christ, um, John chapter 8 and verse 19, and John chapter 14, 1 through 11. Places where that comes out, very good. Jesus says to Thomas, Whither I go, ye know the way. And Thomas replies, Lord, we know not whither you go, how know we the way? Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but, my, but by me. If he had not known me, ye would, if he had known me, excuse me, you would have known my Father. From henceforth ye know him and have seen him. And then Philip, who, according to J.C. Ryle, must have been uh, not listening carefully enough. Philip then says, Lord, show us the Father, and it will suffice for us. Jesus said unto him, have you been so long with, have I been so long with you? And do you not know me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. How sayest thou, show us the Father? Jesus is saying, you see me. You see what I do. You see what I, you hear what I say. All of this is to show you who the Father is. Any other passage? another very clear passage. Eric? Okay, Colossians 1 and verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Here again, another statement that Jesus Christ is the image of God. He is the perfect example, the perfect representation, the unmarred by sin representation that we are to follow. I'll give you one last shot to hit the the number one text. Okay, Peter. No, Mike. John 1, 18. Thank you. But it was another Philippians is also an excellent passage. But John 1 and verse 18. John 1 and verse 18. In this description, in his prologue to his gospel, he's laying out that the word came into the world. And what at the very end of his prologue, he gives us the reason. What is he coming for? No man, no man has seen God at any time. 
the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. He has exegeted him, is the transliteration of the Greek. He has come and, as it were, opened up and expounded for us, as the sermons do the text of Scripture. So Jesus Christ did for us who the character of God, the person of God. He exegeted, he expounded, he explained to us the character of God. Now, there are a couple of others, but I think that's solid evidence enough that the Lord Jesus Christ is for us clear revelation about who God is. Now, with regard to general revelation, regard to general revelation, nature does tell men about God. Romans 1 and verse 18 through 20. Psalm 19 and verse 1. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. Psalm 50 and verse 6. And the heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. God's Existence and God's character are clearly revealed for us in nature, whether it be in man himself or in man's conscience or whether it be in looking out at the world around us. But general revelation must always be viewed from the standpoint and through the glasses of special revelation. It is a dangerous thing to look out at creation and say, that's what God must be like without looking at it through the spectacles of the word of God. Many people do this. They look at man and they say, this is what I am like. And instead of seeing that they have been made in the image of God, they then make God in their image. General revelation becomes the standard for who God is. That is a very, very dangerous and damning place to be. The fact of the matter is, we must always use special revelation to clarify and to make us, to help us to understand what general revelation is teaching us. But there are helpful things that we can see in general revelation. As the Bible clearly says, the glory of God, the righteousness of God, and his divine nature even. But then finally... All of this must be done in dependence upon God. As we approach this study, we must keep in view that we are dependent upon God to know anything about God. We are totally dependent upon God. Matthew 11 and verse 27 says that no man knows the Father save those whom the, save the Son and those whom He wills to reveal Him to. We are dependent upon the Son's will to reveal the Father to us. In 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 6, For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. How are we going to see the glory of God in looking at Christ? Only if God sovereignly signs the light upon our hearts and gives knowledge. And thirdly, the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 2, 11 through 14. No one knows the spirit of a man save the no one knows the spirit of man save the spirit that is in him. And so much more so when it comes to God. We need the spirit's directing. Thought I could quote it, but the verse eludes me. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 
beginning in verse 11. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man or knows that of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the things or thoughts of God no man knows except the spirit of God. And so we are dependent upon the spirit of God revealing those things to us if we are to know God. If we are going to draw near to him. Now this leads us directly into the five points that I see of difficulties as we approach this study. I'm not going to ask you for these five points because I'm running out of time. So let me just give you my five things that I see as difficulties. There may be others, but these are things which have been or are to me clear difficulties to any right knowledge of God. The first of all, growing out of the statement we just made, is that God is infinite and we are finite. God is an infinite being. Gerhardus Voss in his biblical theology and the opening pages of that book has an excellent description of this. I don't have time to read it in pages three and four. Basically, he says this in all areas of science, we stand over the thing we are looking at and we examine it and we pull it apart. When it comes to man and to know men, at best, we can know what a man reveals to us. But he goes on to say, even if somehow we could penetrate into a man who is equal to us, has a spirit like unto us and a body like unto us, is marred by sin in ways common to us. Even if we could penetrate into him, that would still set us miles from God, light years from God, because he is the infinite supreme being. And there is he is thus he is far above us. He is infinite. We have finite minds trying to grasp that which fills heaven and earth. And to even make the picture worse, we are sinful and he is perfectly holy. So our minds are warped and our minds are discolored and our minds are, are affected by sin. And it's like looking at these stars afar off through the atmosphere. And the best you can do is get this little twinkling effect. You see a little spot of light, and that's about all you can make out. Well, even as Christians, even with the Spirit dwelling within us, we are approaching that which is infinite and that which is holy, and we are finite and sinful. But there is also the difficulty of overlap. And as I go through these different studies, and as we look at the doctrine of God, we're trying to take that which is one. And we are going to try to examine him and break him up into categories so that we in our finite minds can understand something of the infinite. But the problem is when you start doing that, things are going to overlap. And so it becomes difficult. Well, does this go here? Does this go here? And so I'm, I'm going to repeat myself throughout this study. I can't help it. One of the difficulties in studying a, a whole and trying to break it up into pieces is that there is going to be overlap. But something of a little greater danger is the tendency to speculate. There's the difficulty of our minds to want to run out in that God-given ability to imagine and that God-given ability to extrapolate. And we're going to want to, to speculate about what God is like. We're going to get a little, little bit of knowledge and we're going to say, wow, if that's true, then this must be and this must be. We must. We must. Hold back any desire to go beyond what the scriptures tell us. It has gotten many people in great 
grave trouble to their souls. And in the words of the apostle in 1 Corinthians 4, 6, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that in us you might learn not to exceed what is written, in order that no one of you might become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. The tendency, the tendency to speculate leads to pride. Because I know something that you didn't, because by my mind, I could extrapolate to a certain point. Paul says, learn from our example, not to exceed what is in Scripture. In the Old Testament statement of this, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to Jehovah our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of his law. But then on the other scale, you have over you have speculation on one side. The other difficulty is oversimplification. And we begin to think, well, I can know God and I can put him in my little boxes and God is almighty and God is omniscient. And I can know all that there is to know about God being eternal. And and somehow we then tend to oversimplify everything and think that we can somehow grasp and, and get it all down. We must fight against that tendency as well, because the Bible directly sets before us many times things which our minds cannot directly grasp in their entirety. And there are oftentimes biblical tensions where if we resolve the tension one way or the other, we will step into error. And we must hold both strands of the tension and say the Bible teaches God is perfect. God decrees all things. God decreed sin. And yet God is not the author of sin. That's what the Bible teaches us. And when we try to rationalize and figure it out, it leads us into error. We must avoid the difficulty and the pit of oversimplification. But then we must also avoid the influence of modernism and humanism. Modernism and humanism. J.I. Packer puts it this way. The spirit... Of humanism is that spirit which spawns great thoughts of man and leaves room for only small thoughts of God. Man is great and man is going to be the focus of our attention and man is so good and man. No. The study of God does anything for us. It ought to humble us. It ought not to give us great thoughts of man, but it ought to leave us with great thoughts of God. Jeremiah 9 Verses 23 and 24. Thus says Jehovah, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boasts of this, that he understands and knows me. That I am Jehovah who exercises loving kindness, justice and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things. Let him boast in these things. Beware of the influence of modernism, which wants to elevate man and thus lower God. But the other way that this tendency shows itself is in skepticism. Skepticism, the influence of modernism and humanism comes into our realm and this thought of prove it to me. Reading the Bible with a skeptical mind is different than reading and approaching God with a questioning mind. I don't want to squelch all questions. If you don't ask questions, you won't learn. We need to be asking questions. A skeptical mind begins from the standpoint of unbelief 
and only believes what it cannot disprove. That's the skeptical mind. That's the mindset we ought not to have. Not the mindset of come to the scriptures and say, ah, you show me. I'm not going to believe it. If I can disprove it in any way, I'm not going to believe it. No, the biblical questioning mind is the mindset which comes from a posture of belief. This book is true. What it tells me is absolutely true. And thus it receives the words from this book eagerly and attributes all difficulties not to the error of Scripture, but to the weakness and sinfulness of my own mind and heart. That's the mindset. Coming with questions. Lord, I want to know you. Show me. What about this? Show me this. And then eagerly receives what it says. Even when sometimes it takes a long time to be able to get any kind of grasp about what it really means. You say the weakness is with me, not with the scriptures. Beware of the difficulty of modernism and humanism coming in the way of skepticism. Well, then finally, in the few minutes that remain, let me set out the approach that we're going to take. The approach that we're going to take in this study. We're going to deal, first of all, with the being of God. And then with the attributes of God. First of all, we're going to look at the fact of who God is. And the fact that he does exist. And what is his nature as he exists. And then we're going to look at his attributes. What is he like? What does he think like? How does he respond? We're going to look at his, his attributes of well, it's hard. A characteristic is about the closest that I can find as a synonym to attributes. But what is he like? He is. And what is, what is he like? And something of the catechism question will be used to structure much of my thoughts. The shorter catechism question is, who is God or what is God? God is, is the way it begins. A spirit, infinite, eternal and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness and truth. And that's the way, basically the way we'll approach it. He is a spirit. And then we'll look at his attributes. But the emphasis will be not on knowledge to fill up our head, but practical exhortation and application. Now you see why I wrote the other outline before class. Practical application. That's going to be the emphasis because that's the emphasis of Scripture. Scripture says that they they say that they know God, but they deny him by their works. Titus one and verse 16 in Deuteronomy chapter four, that passage I mentioned earlier after telling them that you may know God and then commanding them after looking at all these things to know God. He ends that chapter in verses 39 and 40, he says, therefore, says, know, therefore, today and take it to heart that Jehovah, he is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is no other. So you shall keep his statutes and his commandments. Why are they to know? Why are they to learn and to grasp these things? So they will keep his statutes and his commandments, which I am giving you today. That it may go well with you and with your children after you, that you may live long on the land which the Jehovah your God is giving you for all time. And so even there, the emphasis upon doing, upon applying 
the word in Deuteronomy chapter seven, verses nine through eleven. Another place. Know, therefore, the Lord or Jehovah, your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousand generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. And then in verse 11, therefore, with this knowledge and knowing that he is a God who will repay. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment and statutes of the judgments which I am commanding you today to do them. It is all with the focus of driving us to apply the word of God. Now, very briefly, my three goals, three goals, and I hope to have and I hope will become your goals. As it says in Colossians chapter one and verse nine, that we would increase in our knowledge of God. I desire that by this class we might increase. Now you say, well, I've sat in many classes before. I've heard many sermons on the attributes of God. I tell you, no matter how many sermons, as long as you're in this world, you hear on the attributes of God, no man will ever be able to exhaust the doctrine of God on any one aspect, much less all of them. And so I know that I don't have any great knowledge that you've never heard before. But just repeating it in my own words, hopefully God will use that then to enlighten all of our minds and to help us to know our God better. So an increase in the knowledge of God, but also an increase in our accuracy of representing God. A desire that each and every one of us might more accurately reflect the character of our God. And thus, I hope that this study in looking at who God is will enable us to keep the command to imitate God as beloved children. But ultimately, ultimately, the goal is to augment or increase our love for God. Increase our knowledge of God, yes. Increase our accuracy and representation of God, yes. All out of a love for God. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5, quoted by our Lord in Matthew 22, verse 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Brethren, may we make it our prayer that which Moses prayed when he wanted to see God. Show me thy glory. May we increase in our love for God that we might draw nearer to him and enjoy the fellowship more thoroughly with him. Let us pray. Our God, as we do approach you in this study, we thank you, first of all, that you have revealed yourself to us. You have not left us without knowing who you are, but you have graciously made yourself known to us in your word. Help us to study it with a mind that is believing. Help us to approach it with a humble spirit. And help us, O oh God, to attain these goals that we have set out at the beginning. That we might know you better. That we might better reflect you. That we might love you more. We ask, O oh God, show us thy glory. Through Jesus Christ. Amen.